0: Well, um, since we're here, why don't we talk about the book of Acts, right? So we are our series that we've been in, the uh, uh, chapter 21 of Acts, as we were working through chapter by chapter the book of Acts. Uh, Today's message, I I thought was clever, but it's don't fear zombies. And uh, let me uh, tell you why. Um, I don't like horror movies. In fact, I hate horror movies. I've never enjoyed them. Nothing about them has ever really appealed to me. And and I don't really much like Halloween or anything like that. It just kind of grosses me out gross things. But I think of all of the monsters, the worst I've ever seen are zombies because they're like the living dead, right? But here you have zombies are just normal people that uh, suffer a superficial wound, right? And then that infection from that wound festers until they become a mindless mob that is, you know, out to just destroy everyone else, right? Or to wound them. And that's how new zombies get made. And so how do they do it? They destroy others' brains, right? Or they assimilate them into the pack of the other mindless half-dead thingies. And it's terrifying, right? And there's no place to escape them. They seem to track down, and you can't reason with a zombie, and they're just scary. But I'll tell you that as I was thinking about this chapter today, it it dawned on me that zombies are real, and the Apostle Paul, uh, he faced them. In fact, we see zombies today, don't we? I mean, people who suffer a superficial wound that's usually what we call being offended, it doesn't kill you, but you suffer an offense, and all of a sudden, you let that fester and then they form mobs around that to destroy anybody whether facts or reality doesn't matter they just go after them to destroy them or to wound them so they become part of the mob it's real zombies are real and that was a terrifying thing but i read the end of the book and i read the chapter this week we don't be afraid of them do not have to be afraid of them and so that's what I'm excited to talk about. Before I do, a very powerful, important memory verse. Of course, you remember, every week we have a memory verse, and every series we do. And the, today's memory verse, the series memory verse, comes to us from Acts chapter 20. That was last week's chapter, chapter 20, verse 24. It says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, uh, if you've been with us for... Uh through the series, of course, hopefully this is starting to uh, resonate. You're starting to implement this, and then hopefully that you start to know this a little better. If you your first time with us or, or whatever, that we want to welcome you to it. Um, this is super easy. All you have to do is just say it with me a few times. And uh, it's amazing how the Word of God begins to stick, and then I'll talk about how it begins to then transform us. So here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace Acts 2024. 20, oh you guys sound like zombies, but I love you anyhow. Um, <laughs> be fully alive. This is good stuff. Our mission is to testify to the good news of God's grace. testify It means that we've experienced it. What an awesome assignment from God. Let me tell you how this has helped me and I've been uh, for those of you've been here every week you kind of hear this story how this Uh, passage has been working in me and how it's been transforming me, I recognize that I wasn't where the apostle uh, Paul was at the end of his ministry. uh, When he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me, honestly, I couldn't say that. And how do I know that? When people offend me, I recognize that my life is worth more than nothing to me, right? When they do crazy things like Bring 16 items in the 15 item or left thing at Safeway, right? I'm like, can't you count, right? This is why, right? That, that I recognize that uh, my life does seem to be valuable to me, right? And so when I got offended, it would make me mad and those types of things. And so this passage began with uh, really teaching me that I can consider my life worth nothing. How? By focusing on what God wants. Right? So what would happen is I would get offended earlier on, and I was finding myself being uh, not so pastorally, especially in, in, in traffic. I don't know same with road rage. Like people turn into like uh, beasts behind the wheel. Like somebody would pull out in front of you or stop and look at an elk in the middle of the road, and you just, you know, all of a sudden you could be perfectly kind and nice, and all of a sudden you're like, die! Why are you in front of me doing this? That's not a believer's response. And so, uh, I found that what would happen is I would have these moments where my life would seem much more than nothing to me and I would be very offended. And then God would remind me of this word and it would bring not just conviction, but opportunity for repentance and change. Right? So that's how it began. And then a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I noticed that it was in the midst of the offense, right? when something would be happening, I'd be having a conversation with somebody, they would do something mean, and all of a sudden in the middle of it, I would be reminded of this that my task is to testify the good news of God's grace. So I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was at the post office, right? And I was waiting in line forever on my lunch hour. So, And I was waiting and waiting. I get to the front of the line, and as soon as I get to the front, the person needs to take their break. And in that moment, I recognized I can consider my life worth nothing to me. See, I, had, I still was on pa- purpose. It wasn't that they were wasting my time. I was on God's time, and, and I had task, and it was to testify to the good news of God's grace. She gave me an opportunity to pray for that person, but also get to know some of the people around me if we had some time. And here recently, these last week or so, week and a half, I've noticed also then beforehand, before I'm going into something that I know just is going to be offensive, because I've been quoting this, and God's been helping me through it, before I get to a situation that's going to be rough, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit reminds me of this passage. It's Kind of like, all right, (laughs) remember what it's about. So, uh, you know, places that we find ourselves these most easily offended traffic, Safeway, things like this. I, uh, I find that I have this passage and it reminds me, it puts me in the right frame of mind. So I think the biggest place is right out there by, when I have to turn and leave after the, uh, a day of work because it's like four or five minutes I have to wait for traffic. I'm like, where are you people going? The town's only so big, right? And there's just traffic after traffic and I would get so frustrated for people that want to come and relax. That's not a right heart. But I've been sitting there beforehand to leave and how God's been showing me this passage. And so when I get there and I'm waiting, how the Lord has transformed my heart to, the, to it's been totally different. So sitting there full of anxiety and anger to sit there and to pray for all of those people coming to our community. Sometimes the, the, to rest and they need it and their families need healing, right? Some of them need to recharge. A lot of times people come here and because of the beauty of where we live, they're open to a spiritual experience for the very first time. And so instead of sitting there angry, God has transformed me, and so the time has been redeemed to pray for. And, I, and it's, it's been transforming. That's the power of God's Word. And I encourage you, don't just memorize this, but pray it. Think about it. Let God's Word do its work in your life as well. The benefits are many. Now, since we're here to, to listen to what we're going through Acts, last week we, Paul did say that right? Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. And so if, uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you, join me there. Acts chapter 21, if you have, using one of our Bibles, it's going to be on page 775, uh, near the bottom there. And uh, if you forgot your Bible today, don't worry about it. We're church. We've got lots of them. by the sound booth. You can use one of those. And if you need a Bible or a new Bible, just keep it. It'll be our gift to you today. Now, As you're turning there, let me just catch you up. This is Acts 21, so what happened in Acts chapter 20? Well, the Apostle Paul was in Miletus. It was a town that was just south of Ephesus, right? And he was there um, at the end of his third missionary journey, right? And it was a three-year-long mission that was very, very successful where he was there most of the time in Ephesus, which was in modern-day Turkey, but in the ancient world they called it Asia. And while he was there, he had a miraculous ministry. God did some phenomenal things there. And churches were planted to the point that the the gospel grew so much that idol makers were going out of business and they decided to riot. That's how good the church was doing. Right, people burned five million dollars worth of scrolls full of spells. Right in the public square, it's a phenomenal place. Right, so Paul had a very, very successful ministry. The church was growing. After the the uh, idol makers, they had their riot. Right, Paul's like, I think my work here is done. I mean, that's pretty good sign that you're doing all right. And so he's like, all right, it's time to wrap this up. Um, the the churches, the Christians that were in Jerusalem, the mostly Jewish believers that were down there were being persecuted and things were difficult for them. And there was some, uh, economically it was being difficult. And so Paul then goes on and does a quick tour around the rest of Jerusalem uh, uh, Turkey, modern day Turkey and Greece, but uh, he goes up to the, the Gentile churches, brings an offering together, all these Gentile churches, brings all this money as well as delegates from those churches to go back to Jerusalem by Pentecost to be able to offer that to the church as a sign of unity between the, Jews, the Jewish church and the Gentile church, saying we're one in Christ and that we're supporting one another. And so that's kind of, uh, on his way back, Paul stops at Miletus uh, Um, to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And so that's where we finished last week, and that's where we have that passage where Paul says, I am considering my life worth nothing to me, right? Why would he say that? Well, and he's in uh, Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus. He doesn't want to go to Ephesus because he doesn't want to spend too much time. He's on the clock, right? And so he brings him down, and he's um, on his way there while he was collecting the offering. The Holy Spirit was telling Paul, listen, You're going to do this, it's important that you do this offering, but I just want you to know that when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. Prison and torture await you, right? And so Paul is well aware of it's going to be difficult when he gets to Jerusalem, but he's undaunted. God wants him to do this, it's good for the church. And so he's at Ephesus and he tells the Ephesian elders, I know what awaits me down there, but the kingdom of God is is not about Paul. Paul. That the kingdom of God is about God. It's, it's Christ's kingdom. And so he says, listen, I, I'm not going to see you guys again, most likely, but that's okay. We'll see each other in the kingdom. He said, but I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So that's what he tells them. And so they, uh, they send him away they, with prayers and, of course, with tears because they loved the Brother Paul. And uh, he gets on a boat from Miletus, and it's a little trade ship that... Uh, Um, They didn't have aircraft back then, if you can believe it, so they had to take boats, and this was a little boat, it was like a regional thing, and so uh, they they would have to stay close to the coast, and they brought, uh, while the boats were traveling through, they didn't just bring passengers, but they brought goods, right? Um, from port to port. So he gets on a boat there at Miletus, and in verse 1, we find that he goes out from Miletus, and he leaves, and he goes by Kos, and then he goes by Rhodes, right see there. And then um, Patria, right there, this is where he ends. And you can see he's made a lot of little stops, because every time you stop, you got to wait. There's a layover, right? they got to unload some stuff, and load things, and it was just taking a while. And Paul was on the clock, right? So it says that gets Patria, verse 2. He says, listen, I was looking for a bigger boat, and they found one that would give him a direct flight, basically a direct sail from there all the way to Syria. So they have to go all the way around the coast. Can you imagine how long that would take? So it says in verse 2, he finds one, they get on the boat, they sail all the way through the open ocean, it seemed like, and then they get to Cyprus, they have a little layover there, and then they get back on the boat from Cyprus, and then they end up in Syria. And they end up at a port called Tyre. Now that's an important city in the Bible. It was a uh, big port city, very uh, influential and things like this. Well, Paul shows up there. It's his first time, we know, from his journeys that he had been there. And uh, this was a massive boat, so it took a while to unload it. It took a week, really, basically, to unload it. And so while he was there, uh, what does he do? Well, he's he finds the church. And it's not just Paul. There's uh, Luke was with him. We have a whole delegate of delegation of, of Gentile believers that are with him from the churches are with him. And they find the, the believers that are there. And it takes up to a whole week. And we read about that really in verse uh, 4. And it said, uh, verse 4 says, "...we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. And through the Spirit they warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem." So while he was there, you find Christian hospitality, though he had not personally met these believers. In fact, many of these Christians that were in Tyre escaped the persecution that Paul himself brought to Jerusalem. That's why they were there, right? Paul brought persecution to Jerusalem, and then the Christians left, and they started the church here. And then Paul shows up, and instead of being mean to him, they take him into their own home for an entire week, and they're also concerned for his safety. The Holy Spirit was also telling them, warning them, that hey, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, it's going to be bad. And so it's not to say that Paul not to go, but they loved Paul, and they were like, Paul, we don't want you to suffer. So they were warning him, Say, listen, uh, the Holy Spirit has told us that when you go there, it's going to be bad. And Paul's like, I know, but I I need to go. He's sending me. This is the mission. And so... uh, after one week, just one week with these brothers and sisters, you read right after that, that he had such a relationship with them. They loved him so much that when he was ready to leave, the entire Christian community, uh, men, women, children, all of them, followed him down to the seashore because that's where boats you know, launch. And that's where they were. And they had a little prayer service. They knelt on the sand and they, they blessed. They prayed for each other and all that. It's just a wonderful, touching uh, thing. Shows you Christian love, genuine Christian testimony. And I think it's really cool how it is wherever you travel in the world, when you find another believer, how there is an instant affection. I found that when the first time I went to Ukraine. Right? I didn't even speak the language. right? But as soon as I got off the airplane, it's amazing when you see another brother sister in the Lord how there is a, an instant kinship. It's an amazing thing. Well, Paul was uh, experiencing that. He leaves Tyre. Um, they go from there, and then he goes down to Ptolemais, which is uh, also later in history called Akos. So for those of you who went to Israel earlier this year, that's the place that you were at. And so Paul shows up there. He sees some Christians there, and... Um, doesn't. It's just a quick layover, and then, then gets back on the boat, and then uh, goes down to Caesarea, which again, if you were on the trip, uh, you would have been in Caesarea. Big time, it's basically the the headquarters for the Romans in the Palestinian area, so it's a big, very important city. Um, palaces were there for Herod, and, and Felix uh, showed up there quite a few times, and stuff like this, and it was a trade. Uh, a port that was there as well so it's a pretty um, impressive place so paul shows up there and who does he meet well in verse 8 uh, as he he goes there verse 7 um, i'm sorry verse 8 he meets a guy named philip and this is not the first time we see philip's called philip the evangelist philip was one of the seven uh, deacons of the early church right so uh, philip uh, was uh, probably a really good friend with a guy named stephen stephen was another one of the first uh, seven deacons right of the early church and Stephen was executed, was the first martyr of the faith in Jerusalem, and he was executed by a mob of people, and then Paul, who was at the time, we called him Saul, but he was there, and he was uh, uh, approving of it. So so Paul was there, and then after that, Paul started his murderous campaign against Christians, which is why then Philip and all the other Christians kind of left, right? And so you you have Paul now show up down here, and this guy named Philip, who Paul... Murdered one of his buddies, who had left his, his home in Jerusalem because of all this. Philip is there, and Philip embraces Paul and brings him into his own home. And they spend time together, and Philip has four daughters, and they're prophetesses, right? They, it says in there they weren't married, uh, that they were uh, part of the church. You know, these, these young women, why would there be prophets or prophetesses? Well, remember the early church, the Bible wasn't fully written yet, right? It was still being penned. Right? And so there's a lot of things, uh, specific truth that God had revealed to us that they didn't have the advantage of saying, turn to 1 Corinthians, right? Paul was still writing it, right? And so God sent prophets and they they shared the truth of God. And so God used Philip, what an amazing guy, his four daughters were prophets of God in the early church. In fact, church history tells us that after this, somehow, Philip and his daughters ended up moving up to a Asia, like the modern-day Turkey, the northern portion closer to um, Ephesus, and they had a lifelong ministry. These four women uh, served the church, and they never got married, but they served the church faithfully, even into their old age and on these different communities, uh, faithfully proclaiming the truth of God. Isn't that amazing? So anyway, they show up there, and Paul is there with these prophetesses and Philip, and, and they're having this ho- amazing hospitality. And another prophet comes down to join them, and we read about that. And starting in uh, was it verse ten? Make sure that I have that. It says, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from, Jude- uh, from Judea, uh, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt and in his and tied his own hands and feet together with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind up the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And he goes on, he says, when we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. (laughs) I love how oddest the early church is. This thing is, why would God send these prophets? I don't know if it was so much for Paul. Paul already knew that he was going to go and suffer. I think it was also for the church, wasn't it? Think of what Paul was coming back from. A powerful, miraculous ministry right there in Asia. Right, like God was so very clearly with him that just even Paul's handkerchiefs were were curing people of their diseases. Think how amazing that is, right? And the gospel was proclaimed so much that idol worshippers were going out of business and all kinds of stuff. God's hand was clearly on Paul, and sometimes we as Christians we associate the outworking, the evidence of that to say that that must be the presence of God. But God is not only there in the times of great prosperity, but he's also there in the times of difficulty, isn't he? Isn't that why Jesus gave us that promise, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? That is important. I think what would happen is the early church, they could have seen this amazing work of Paul, the ministry in Asia, and then he comes back to Jerusalem, and the thought could very easily come into the Christian minds, God has abandoned Paul. He's allowing him to be arrested and tortured. I think it was important for the church to know that, that God was calling this. Sometimes God calls us into suffering. I think it was also important for the church to understand that Paul did this willingly. That God said, Paul said, I signed up for this. I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm on mission, so don't worry. And the rest of the congregation, when they, they heard that, they said, okay, Lord's will be done. It's the Lord's will that does this. Okay, you're on missions and so be it. So then they leave, and they go up to Jerusalem on their way. They stay at another believer's house. And I think it's interesting. There's a passage in there that as they go up to it, it just says that his name was Amonason, which is like uh, Roman Jason. which I think is funny how they did that. And uh, it says when they were there that they showed them hospitality. Think how this is a, a little verse in our Bible, but really big in significance. Who was traveling? Paul, but not just Paul. You had a lot of Gentiles, didn't you? You had Luke. You had all that long list of the delegates from the Gentile churches were going along with him. And who takes him in? This Jewish man on the outside of the Jewish town is Christian. He takes him into his own home. Think about the unity that that shows, not just from the official side that the Jews and the Gentiles are all one in Christ, but you see real Christian hospitality being shown. It's phenomenal. Well, from there, they go up to Jerusalem, and I imagine if you were a Paul, when you walk in Jerusalem, you'd have a little bit of anxiety, right? If the Holy Spirit's telling you the whole time when you get there, you're gonna get uh, tortured, probably you'd be like, all right, here it comes. So what happens? He shows up in Jerusalem, and then verse 17, he finally arrives, and it says, when he arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. Huh. That probably wasn't exactly what he was expecting, right? He shows up there, and it's good, Right, he gets in there and he, and he says right after that, he says, the next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and the elders that were present. Who was James? The brother of Jesus, known as James the Just, the, really the, the, um, the chief pastor, the lead pastor of Jerusalem, right? a, a powerful man uh, in word and in faith and was highly respected. And they go and they have an audience with him and all of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, these Gentile believers. And Paul tells them everything that God had done in Ephesus that they were and throughout the region of Asia in his last missions, and they bring the offering, showing the unity of the church, right, and the support of the church, right. And so, what happens is it says that uh, that they praise God. Verse twenty: When they heard this, they praised God. The Jewish Christians were ecstatic, praising God for the way that the Lord had brought salvation to all nations. But not only they praised God, is that they also brought a warning. Then they said to Paul, you see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews have be- believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live amongst the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come so do what we tell you. Now, this, they said, listen, there's a lot of Jewish people, thousands, who have come to faith. That is great news. But they heard fake news. And they believed it. And you understand that there was the people, we don't live in a vacuum, right? We're part of our culture. And right at that time in Jerusalem, in Israel, there was a growing nationalism that was growing amongst the people of Israel right? To a point that it wasn't just religious, but it was like, we're going to take our land back from the Romans. We're tired of waiting. We're going to be like the Maccabees earlier on who fought off the Greeks. They were ready for that. They wanted to have their nation again. They were tired of waiting. And because of this growing nationalism, they say, we're the people of God. Why are we still under this? We're going to fight, right? And so, uh, more and more around the dinner tables and amongst the, the Jewish community and the families, there became this polarization more and more where anybody who even talked to a Gentile was seen as suspect. They were part of the problem. And it was going to the point that, that by time Paul shows up again, there were these assassins that were actually in the temple. And they would walk around. They had these little curved blades that they held underneath their Their uh, tunics, and when somebody would come or a cloak, when somebody was in the temple and was usually like a wealthier person, they thought was maybe conspiring or talking to a gentile or anything like that. They would stab them right there in the temple. I mean, it was politically charged, and that same political uh, that nationalism began to grow and grow and grow and grow. And within ten years, we find that even James, the James the Just, who uh, in fact it says thousands of Jewish people had followed Jesus. Did you know that at that time that they, uh, and within 10 years, there'd be seven times more Christians, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem than there were uh, Pharisees? That's a phenomenal. The, the, the original uh, uh, growth of the church there. It was amazing. There were so many of them but, uh, that uh, in 10 years though, even though there were so many Jewish Christians, they killed uh, James, executed him. And then right after that, they had the the Roman-Jewish war began. And it ended, of course, uh, right after in AD 70, we see Jerusalem completely destroyed. The war began several years before that, and and the temple was destroyed, and after that, finally, Masada fell at the very end. But that's the political movement. That's the the temperature. That's what was happening in the nation. So the leaders of the church were saying, in our culture right now, uh, people are believing a lie about you, Paul. We know it's not true. Paul, in fact, didn't he to Timothy, right? Wasn't he coming back to celebrate the, uh, the Pentecost? Now, he wasn't telling Jews not to celebrate their, their, their heritage, right? He didn't tell them not to be Jewish anymore. He was just saying, if you're a believer in Jesus, follow Jesus. If you're a Gentile, you don't have to follow all those things, right? If you're Jewish, you don't have to walk away from those things, right? That's what he was saying. He says, it's about Jesus. And even though his life and his testimony and everything was speaking against that, you have people that were believing the false narrative about Paul, even in the church. And so the early leaders of the church said, be careful. We want you to, to undo this uh, so that way there's not going to be revolt. So do what we tell you to do. And this is what they told him to do. They said, Paul, we want you to go uh, into the temple. There are some guys that have uh, done an, a vow, most likely a Nazarite vow. And we want you to pay their expenses. Because that will demonstrate that you are invested. You're okay with them going and fulfilling their Nazarite vows. You're not against Moses or anything else. right? So go to the temple and do that thing and just demonstrate with your actions what they're saying is false. So Paul says, okay, I'll do it. And he does. He goes up to the temple and he does everything that the early church told him to do. Uh, and uh, it didn't turn out the way that uh, he thought it was going to. Verse 23 we see there. It says so. Um, he said they take these men, they shave their heads, they went into the the temple, and then we get to uh, verse twenty six, or the end of the where Paul has kind of fulfilled all he was supposed to do. He said the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. He went to the temple to give notice of the date uh, that the day of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. And within seven days, that was was nearly over. Some Jews that were from the province of Asia. Asia saw Paul at the temple. Now, why were they there? Well, they were there for Pentecost, right? Jews from all over the world would be there. Paul would spend all that time in Asia. They certainly would have known about him. And what did they say about him? They stirred up a whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now, they were leveling a charge against Paul. was absolutely the opposite of what he was physically doing, right? How infuriating would that be? You're being accused of a crime that you're in the exact opposite. You're committing the exact opposite of. But they believed something about Paul. They believed the, the false narrative. They believed that they had this offense against him, right? And so facts didn't matter, And so they assumed things, they painted him with some assumptions that he brought Gentiles into the temple, which was a capital offense, which he didn't do. And that's all they needed. They didn't need evidence. Why would they need evidence? They have their outrage. And with that outrage, what do they do? They proclaim it socially, and they get a giant mob around them to tear Paul apart. And so Paul is attacked by the mindless horde. What does he do? Well, first thing he does is gets beat up, right? They pull him out of a place of worship. Isn't it amazing how mobs, in the name of doing what is right, can inflict the worst injustices? Right? They wanted to, to uh, protect the sanctity of the temple, and so what do they do? They're going to commit murder in the temple. Isn't it insane how people we are? That they... We, when we lose our direction from God and we take justice into our own hands, how readily we will do what is wicked in the name of, uh, of, of righteousness. And we will call wrong right and right wrong and we will believe it with our whole heart. And that's what they did to Paul. They were going to murder him in the temple in the name of trying to keep the temple pure. And so what happens is that the law shows up thankfully for Paul. There was a, a Roman garrison that was there right near the temple. The Roman leader looks out and he's like, uh-oh, problem in the temple. So he sends out the soldiers, about 200 of them. They go and they surround Paul. They, they, they get him there and they're going to arrest him and figure out what's happening here. Right. So in verse 33, 36, we see this. It says, The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd shouted one thing and some... Uh, Another, and since the commander couldn't get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. Isn't it amazing that even in this instance that those filthy Romans acted more just than the people that were at the temple? That's what a mindless mom can do. And so they go, and and I think this too, the commander's like, what did he do? And they didn't even know why they were tearing apart. Right, Facts didn't matter. The reality of, of who Paul was didn't matter. They couldn't even decide. We're just killing him because we're mad. And so Paul is saved. Right? This cavalry comes in. The Romans go and they arrest him and they bring him back to the barracks. And so you would think at this point, hey, uh, he's safe. He's going to go back into an armored area and then this will all get uh, fixed and, and he'll be safe. But Paul uh, does not respond with fear towards the mob. Look how he responds, verse 37. He says, As the the soldiers were going to take Paul to the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started the revolt and led the thousands of terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? And Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. Now think how important this is. Paul doesn't run away from the, from the mob. First thing he does is politely, respectfully. He's being arrested. He did nothing wrong, by the way. You don't see Paul saying, I didn't violate my civil, my civil rights. He's a Roman citizen. Right? He doesn't say, I did nothing wrong and get mad at the police for arresting him, all that kind of stuff. He's polite. He's kind to the authorities who were chaining him up. He says, um, "Excuse me," as the crowd is around him, trying to tear him apart. May I have a word? And the commander says, "I'm surprised that you speak Greek. You're, you're clearly, this is not his what expectation was. Why is that? Well, the Roman uh, authority he, he drew some assumptions. Remember that this was a time and age where the 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 uh, nationalism of Israel was starting to grow, and with that became these false messiahs." And typically they would go and they would go out to uh, like the Negev, the, the wilderness area, and they would get a following and then they would do something stupid like try to attack uh, Jerusalem or something like that. Well, there was a guy from Israel, from Alexandria, and he was. Uh, he Thought, tried to make something of himself, and he was out there in Negev, and it says he got 4,000 followers with him. And then history tells us that he showed up on the Mount of Olives a few years before this, and he was standing on the Mount of Olives looking over at the city, and he made this declaration, at my word, the city walls will fall down, right? And with that, Felix, who was the governor of, of the area, says, I don't think so, takes a Roman garrison up and wipes out those 4,000 followers. This coward, whoever he was, this this uh, Alexandrian Egyptian guy, he escapes and becomes a fugitive. And so the, uh, the temple uh, guard, right, the, the centurion, he thinks to himself, Paul must be that guy. Because who else would be so hated? right? Because the Jewish people that were in the city, they didn't like this guy. He was a false messiah, which was bad. right? And he brought about military invasion in their city and probably some of them knew folks that had been murdered because this guy decided to tell a lie. And so the centurion thinks, ah, this is the terrorist. And he's going to go down, he's going to arrest him. That's what he thinks. But Paul says, no, he speaks to him in a language that surprises him, in a way that surprises him. And then he says, listen, I'm not this who you think I am. I'm actually a Jew from a different city, actually a good city. And so imagine the centurion was thinking, oh, case of mistaken identity. If Paul can just address the crowd, it'll let him know who he really is. And then this whole trouble will go away. And so he gives Paul the opportunity to stand and to speak. Now think about Paul though. He is standing there being freed and saved from a murderous crowd. I imagine the, the most place he wanted to be the most in his flesh was behind those big safe doors of the fortress. But instead he stands on the steps to address the very people that were there to kill him. And you get to hear what he talks about next week. But this week, we're going to talk about why we don't have to be afraid of zombies. Because they exist. The murderous crowds, they're there. Why do we not have to be afraid of them? And the first thing, the reason that we don't have to fear them is this, is that we have God. Right? Just like from Paul, we from this text, that one of the reasons I think Paul was so brave is he knew that he wasn't alone. It wasn't just Paul was on this mission. God was on this mission with him. Right? And when we remember the memory verse, hopefully. That uh, I consider my life worth nothing to me, but he's got a name to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given him. Now Paul summarizes, testify the good news of God's grace, but also Jesus is actually in the longer version of that. We find Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it's called the Great Commission, the, the task the Lord Jesus has given us. How do we testify the good news? We make disciples, Right? Right, and in the very end of that after Jesus said go make disciples of all kinds of people baptize them in the name of the Father son and the Holy Spirit teach them how to obey everything I commanded you he gives this promise I'm with you to the very end of the age There's other places that Jesus promises I'm never going to leave you I'm not going to forsake you right there's he recognizes that that Paul's not out there on his own God is with him And even look at at the when Paul was going up to Jerusalem when he stops over at uh, uh at that city and, uh, the, the, where uh, you have a, a Tyre, um, where you have all the Christians that are there in Tyre, and, and they're surrounding him, they're telling Paul, don't go, don't go, right? And he says, listen, I have to go, it's the Lord's will. And then later on, he goes down uh, to Caesarea, and he says, listen, I have to go, it's the Lord's will be done, is what they finally said, it's the Lord's will. Right? He, Paul was not absent from God's pr- purpose, he wasn't absent from God's presence. Paul stood with the Lord. God is with him. And I'll tell you, the mob might be scary, but it is not as big as God. Can we agree? That's a powerful thing. But Paul was able to stand there and say, you can do what you're going to do, but you're only going to be able to do what you're going to do if God allows it. And Paul might remember way back to, I don't know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a furnace and that couldn't even burn him. Or Daniel was thrown into a, a pit and the lions couldn't eat him. It's the same God. The same God that brought Moses right up to the Red Sea, toes dipped in it, while the entire largest army in the world was coming behind them, and God opens up the sea so they could walk through. When God is with you, there is no one, nothing that can override His purposes in your life. We're part of His kingdom, we're on His schedule. And Paul knew that he was there and there would be imprisonment and there would be pain because being in God's kingdom, we, we have to suffer sometimes. He says, be good soldiers, but don't let our suffering make us think for one second that God has abandoned us. He's there. We don't have to fear the mob because God is present. Sometimes we face down a social media mob or the outrage of a culture that calls us hateful even though we're trying to show love. But there are all kinds of, of difficult Trials that we have to walk through. Let it be sickness, depression, joblessness, all kinds of horrible things, right? Grief. Believers, we have to understand that in any one of these things, whatever the mob is, it doesn't matter because our God doesn't change. He is with us. So we don't have to be afraid. The reason we don't fear the mob is because God is bigger than the mob and God is present. He's present. Beyond that, recognize that we're on a mission. That we're on a mission from God. How cool is that? One of my favorite movies, the Blues Brothers, right? The amazing thing is in that movie that this crazy woman tries to kill them over and over and over and over again, and the Nazis try to kill them over and over and over again, right? All these people, but they couldn't be stopped. Why? Because they're on a mission from God. Christians have that first. You understand that the, the, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped that God is doing amazing things and he's working in miraculous and powerful ways through believers today. He works in the big and he works in in the silent. God is there. And also I think we recognize too that this world is temporary. This world is not going to last forever. The kingdom of God does. So like Paul was like, I'm willing to die, not that Paul had a death wish. Right, He wasn't out there saying, like, hey, I want to. He just saw what was before him. He's like, if I get to stay here, it's good for my ministry. If I get taken out of that, it's good for me. I'm going to paradise. So whether I live or die, God be praised. What a great way to live. He recognizes he's in the hand of God. His future's in the hand of God. And I think we as believers should follow that example. Oftentimes, we react to the world instead of respond to the world because we're afraid. And we go into that fight or flight, right? We, we get all defensive, like somehow this world is going to override whatever God wants to do, and then we react very poorly. We react like everyone else in this world. But we're not given to fear. We were given to God, and God hasn't. That's why Jesus said, in this world, yeah, you're going to suffer, but take heart, I have overcome it. That's the same God with us. Second thing we have now, we don't just have God. He didn't just leave us that, but He also gave us the tangible representation of His body in this world, and that's the church. We have each other. Isn't it amazing that in all of Paul's journeys, everything, both good and bad, Paul was with the church? Believers band together. When Paul got arrested, the church was praying. In fact, afterwards, the next two years when Paul was in prison and doing this and, and, and stuff, and he was actually had an opportunity to minister to, uh, to kings and to those in authority. But it was the church that visited him in prison that took care of his needs. It wasn't his physical family. That recognized that we have each other. Christian hospitality is a real thing. I experience it when I travel. I hope that you experience it when you come here. Right? That we as believers have a genuine love for one another, and that is from Christ. The affection that we have, the way that we treat one another with, with true welcoming arms and care, is a demonstration and a testimony to the world that we are different, that we belong together, we belong to God. It's a powerful testimony. In fact, Jesus said that the world would recognize that we're legitimate, that we're His, by the way that we love one another. Isn't that amazing? the church, we have each other, we stick together. but the church is also this, it's a, it's a, it's a family. Now Paul knew that his suffering wasn't alone. look at all the way along the path all the believers shared with Paul's suffering. They knew that Paul was going to go there and to suffer and they took it themselves. they said, "Please don't go. this hurts us to see you suffer. but that same suffering allowed them to stand with Paul in prayer and encouragement and all those other things. The only way that you have that is to be connected with the body, right? But as we stand together as a church, we have the ability to face this world not with fear. Isn't it important that the mob tries to tell you are the only one? That's what they try to do, gang up on you so you feel you're outnumbered? We are part of a kingdom that is vast and mighty. And you are part of that. And you stand here with us. We're here to encourage one another. Third thing that we recognize is we have the antidote. Most zombie movies, the people that get zombies is because they have some type of weird zombie virus, right? They get scratched and then they, they get the zombie virus. They let it fester and it changes who they are, right? You know, we have, an, we have a, the antidote to that. So to the offense culture that's in our world that says I've been wounded and therefore I can wound others, right? I've been wronged and therefore I, because I'm a victim I can victimize you and feel good about it, right? This, this crazy culture that we live in, this zombie kind of culture, that we have the real antidote. You know what the antidote is to all of this? It's called the gospel. It's grace. Here's the thing if you've been wounded in life, welcome to humanity. Right? Jesus said, when people say things that are mean about you and do kind of mean stuff, he says, don't be surprised. They did that to Jesus. He was perfect. If it happens to you, it happens to all of us. Why? The world is broken, isn't it? People, we're crazy. We, we hurt other people in the name of, of love, right? We do horrible, detestable things in the name of self-righteousness. We do awful things. That's just part of that's why we're, we need Jesus. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why we need the gospel. The gospel starts with the fact, not only am I wounded, but I'm a wounder. I do, I've been bad. I haven't been perfect. What do I do with that? At the same time, I have been wounded as well. People have have offended me and have done mean things to me. The gospel says this, I have been saved by God's grace. I didn't earn. Not because I was worthy or because I was a great person, but because I wasn't a good person. That's why I needed to be saved. I've been saved by God's grace. He forgave me for all the wounds and the mean and the bad things that I've ever done and i am doing. And will ever do. Saved me from it. Not holding me to a point of, of being punished for them anymore. In fact, taking that punishment on himself. Saved by his grace. Simply through faith. Trusting him. And trusting what? By my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And it gives me an opportunity to demonstrate that faith throughout my entire life. tells me this is how it is. Believe, trust Him, even when I have doubts. Even when I feel so unworthy, to say, God, I trust you. That you have saved me. Have faith, too, when I see another person who's struggling. Like, you know what? They've wronged me, but I know that God can save them, too. I get to demonstrate my faith through not just belief, but confession. I get to identify with Jesus. Think how amazing that is. As messed up as I am, right, you know that there are times I get frustrated behind the wheel, even with the memory verse, I'm getting better. But there are times, and if I have a Christian bumper sticker on the back of my car, God doesn't torch me. He's not ashamed of me. He says I'm a masterpiece, I'm a demonstration of His grace at work in this world. We demonstrate that faith through standing with Jesus, identifying with Him. Say, I am not perfect, but I have been saved. And not just through that that confession that he's my Lord and Savior in my life, but also I can continue to express that faith in my life in this thing called repentance, which just means I get the chance to, to start obeying him, to live my life according to his standards, not mine. To doing what he says is right, not what I think is right, because what I think is right has led me to a lot of bad things. I get to demonstrate my faith in that, saying, God, I believe that you know what's best, and to start living it. I get to demonstrate my faith in baptism, publicly make a proclamation before the entire world that I am his and that I have been saved and my sins are washed away. Think how amazing. I'm part of the kingdom, and born again. That's amazing. He allows me to do that. I can demonstrate my faith, it says in scripture, by being discipled and discipling others. Growing in my faith and teaching others how to do that. I get to demonstrate my faith in my entire life. But I'm saved by God's grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. But if I've been saved by grace, this is how that antidote works. Jesus said, if you have been saved, or you've been forgiven, you need to forgive. The thing is, I've got a lot of wounds that a lot of people give me. But I don't have to become a zombie. I could say, you know what? You were wrong, but I forgive you. Even if you don't deserve it. Especially if you don't deserve it. That's the point. You may hate me, but I don't have to hate you anymore. I can love my enemies. That's what Jesus said I had the power to do. I can pray for those who persecute me, even if you're directly doing mean, horrible things and doing mean, horrible things against me. I don't have to retaliate. I don't have to, I don't have to respond with wickedness, with wickedness. I can respond towards wickedness with good, with hate, with love. harshness with compassion i can do that because i have been saved i can forgive only because i've been forgiven i can love only because i have been loved i can offer hope only because i have been given hope this is the antidote the world continues to wound one another and offend one another and respond with offense with more offense than the entire world mindlessly begins to tear each other apart isn't that what we see in the news We have the antidote. We have the hope. We have the way out. This is why we're not afraid. You can be as mean as you want to me. You can, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm still saved. It doesn't change the fact that I have been forgiven. It doesn't change the fact that I'm loved. It doesn't change the fact that I have the responsibility, obligation before God to forgive you, to love you, to pray for you, to testify to you the good news of God's grace. How do we then begin to apply that? I think the first thing is this. Don't fear zombies. You look in this world social media, right? It's it's real. I even had it this week. I, I posted something about uh and I, I try not to post many things, so I always get in trouble. I always do. And it was a pretty benign thing, but it basically was a, it was a response to somebody who said that uh that all people were good. And that's what Christianity is about. And it was responding to another you know, Christian, not even trying to be mean, but saying, no, 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 no. That we're not good. That's the whole point. That we're not good. But God still loves us, and he transforms us. And that we can do good. Because he's, he's working in us, right? That was, that was basically my 144 characters. And it was uh, flagged and suspended. I was suspended for a little while as hate speech. That was considered hate speech. It still boggles my mind. How on earth? How on earth... But we find that our culture sometimes resists us, right? We 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 feel silence. Like if we try to say anything, even loving that, the response is so much that it's so bad that we would just kind of try to duck and hide, and we just want to be invisible. But that's not what Paul did. He stood on the steps, ready to proclaim. The reason the world responds with hatred towards love is because it doesn't know what love is. They haven't experienced it yet. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You may have family members that criticize you because of your faith. That's okay. They don't know yet. Stand and be with Christ. Love them when they're hateful towards you. Pray for them when they curse you. It's okay. God is with you. The church is with you. Show them love. There might be people in your business or your community or your neighbors that are difficult. Don't be afraid of them. Respond to the hatred with the gospel. A demonstration of the gospel before you even tell them that Jesus forgives them, why don't you forgive them first? Show them kindness and speak that kindness. Testify to the good news of God's grace. Don't be afraid. And recognize this, that we have a fortress. Isn't it awesome that every week we get to start the week here with one another, the body of Christ, right? The crazies stay out. They don't understand us yet. Right? They have no idea but we come together, here's a safe place that we get to pray for one another, encourage one another, all of that. You are safe and a reminder that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And recognize that we are not, uh, we are not without a, uh, a weapon. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the gospel, the word of God, the power of God. We, we know the truth. The truth keeps us right. But the gospel also is able to disarm the hatred in this world. So don't fear the zombies. But I think the second thing that we have to take from this is, is just as important. Is this Don't become a zombie. It's happened in the church. It's happened in the church when we have been offended, hurt by the rest of the world. We are persecuted and people say mean things about us and they hurt us and they treat us unfairly. And we have this offense and so what do we do? We can let it fester and then we can let it turn to hatred. And then it's an us versus them, and then we attack them, and we can do all kinds of horrible things like try to murder somebody in the, t- in the temple. We have to resist this. Isn't this what the, the early church warned the Paul about? He said, listen, there are people here that are going to believe wrong things about you. Be very careful. Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean you're immune from the virus. Hatred is a real thing. We can't let it become infested with us. We have to practice grace regularly. Right? We have to, we have to practice love regularly. We have to forgive regularly. We have to help each other in that, don't we? That's one of the reasons that we're here. To recognize that uh, the end does not always justify the means. In fact, it never does. God will always do what is right in the right way, which means that we don't have to go and murder the bad people. We can let God do his mighty work in their life. We just have to stand and testify. Stand and testify to the good news of God's grace. Faith is so wonderful, so simple. So what have we talked about today? Why we don't have to be afraid of these crazy zombies? How do we we do that? Well, the wrap-up is this. We have God. Don't be afraid, right? We have each other. So we don't have to be afraid. We're not alone. Be more than this. We have the antidote. Don't be afraid. Like this. So don't fear it. Be bold. Let the kingdom of God be in you and grow in you. Now, how do you do that? For you, you have a next step. Those are some big picture things, but how it's applied in your life might look a little different or it's more individual. There's smaller steps. So on the back of your connection card, I have opportunities for you to take some next steps of faith, a demonstration of your faith in this, in your life, right? Because remember, being a disciple of Jesus is following Jesus, which means it's a series of a lot of little steps in our life that we follow after him. So On the back of your connection card, I have some things that I'm going to challenge you to do this week to apply This passage, so it becomes real in your life as well. The first thing you might notice in in there, it says this, that you would commit to memorizing Acts 20, 24. Start with the Word of God. Isn't that great testimony? You've seen in my own life how it's working. Maybe you say this week, I'm going to start applying that to my own life. Or maybe this week what you do is you read Acts 21 for yourself. It is literally one page in the Bible. It is not long, but it's powerful. It's very hopeful, and the Word of God is great. You heard me preach about it. Read it. Or how about this? Maybe what you do is you want to pray for courage and grace. God is with you. He knows how difficult the world can be. He hasn't abandoned you. So pray. Ask him for help and courage and the grace to face this culture. He'll help you. Or maybe what you need to do this week is to pray for three. Why three? Three people that you know in your life who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're out there. They have not experienced his love. They haven't experienced his grace yet. Some of them, maybe they're even hostile to the church. Can you pray for them? Remember that at even one point, Paul himself was so hostile to the church, he was killing deacons in the church. Maybe you begin with the faith of saying, God, you can change anybody's heart. And so you begin praying, asking God to transform their hearts, soften it for the gospel, providing you opportunity to testify to good news in a way that they would be able to receive it. Maybe the Holy Spirit has something different for you. He's talking to you this, this series day and says, you know, I want you to do this, let me know. It's your pastor. I want to support you in that. I want to encourage you in it. So let me know what that is. Maybe another commitment to make or if you have a prayer request, this is your opportunity to write that down. Know this. I pray for you every week. If I know how to pray, it's that much more powerful, right? General prayers, get general answers. Specific prayers get more specific answers. Let me join with you and know how to pray for you. You can write that down. And here just a minute, we're going to take our offering. We take our offering, put your offering envelope in the basket. And I encourage you with that, take this connection card, drop it in the offering basket as it is passed. Um, And it helps me not only connect with you, know that you're here and and all that, but also how to pray for you, uh, but also uh, encourage you as you take these steps of faith. So let me uh, bless you and our offering, and then we'll have Zach and the worship band come out and, and close us with some good worship. Let's pray. Father God, you're powerful, you're mighty, you're just, but you're loving, and you're good. And so, Lord, we, we thank you today that you've called us in your kingdom, that your kingdom is one that is proclaimed with good news. And that good news is that we're saved by your grace through faith, that Jesus really is Lord and Savior, and that we live with hope because of that, and we don't have to be like the rest of this world. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this congregation this week with the courage and the attitude of grace. Give us opportunity to share the good news of who Christ is in this community, in our homes, and beyond. Father, we want to pray a special blessing also for Zach and the, and the youth as they travel this week to camp. Would you, would you meet them there? Would you do amazing things in and through them in this time? We pray also for me, Father, and for the, the mission team that's going to Ukraine. Work in us, be in us. May we be your lights. Father, we pray also for the offering we're about to take. It's a way that we worship you with our things setting you in the center of our life and letting it revolve around you because you are the only one that's worthy. May you accept this and the commitments that we've made today as an offering of ourselves back to you, an investment in your kingdom. Would you build it? We would ask in the beautiful name of Jesus who saves us, amen.